Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> For many people uh, who perhaps don't believe in God, or many people perhaps who don't have a Christian faith, for such people, uh, one of the obvious questions uh, to ask a Christian is uh, this question. If God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? And perhaps someone's asked you that question. If God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? Um, And in the passage that we've read this morning, he does just that. Um, well, last, uh, last time we were looking at Exodus, which is now two weeks ago, because um, we had a bit of a break last Sunday uh, with Derek uh, speaking to us, but we've, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, and two weeks ago, when we read the first half of Exodus 19, we read about how the neonate nation of Israel, how it gives informed consent to God's plan and God's purpose for them as his treasured possession, as a nation with unique and special privileges out of all of the nations, they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And um, you may remember if you were with us that that prompted the question, well, what does the word holy mean? And uh, I explained that the word holy actually has two different meanings, depending on whether the word is used in reference to God or whether the word is used in reference to something or someone other than God. Because when the word holy is used with respect to, say, a person or a nation or a cup or a building or a slice of pizza or a barbecue lunch, then the word holy simply means set apart for God's exclusive use. When something has been set apart for God's exclusive use, just as, for example, this building has been set apart for God's exclusive use, then that building or whatever it is or the lunch, then it is consecrated or sanctified, which means simply made holy, which means in turn simply set apart for God's exclusive use. But in order to understand today's reading, the second half of Exodus 19, we need to think actually about what the word holy means when it is used in reference to God. And actually, suddenly, this word holy becomes, I think, actually very difficult to define. Um, in, in moving towards an understanding of this difficult word, we, we start by recognizing firstly and foremostly that God is holy and that he is perfectly holy, unlimited and unlimitable in his holiness. And there are several places in Scripture where we are allowed a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. And in these glimpses, we frequently encounter angelic beings in perpetual worship crying out, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty, the first and the last, the one to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Three times holy perfectly holy. So that's the first thing to know. God is holy. And a second is like it. 
in the sense in which we're now using the word, when we talk about holy as an attribute of God, God alone is holy. In, in all of human history and on all of human experience, no other deity, no god or goddess has ever claimed to be holy except the God of the Bible alone. No other deity claims to be holy. Of course, in all religions, there is some idea of the sacred, a um, a sacred site being, for example, a piece of land, the honor of that land is connected to the honor of the deity. Uh, sacredness is a common idea, but holiness, no, actually that's uniquely and exclusively biblical. The God of the Bible alone claims to be holy. No other God claims holiness. And I personally believe that holiness is completely absent from human mythology and human religion, I believe, because it is completely absent from human experience. We just don't know what holiness is unless God breaks in, and then suddenly we do. And that's why we struggle to define it. That's why I struggle to define it, um, because holiness is quite alien to usual human experience. The holiness of God, therefore, as I, as I do struggle to define it, the holiness of God is something like God's absolute perfection, and especially his absolute moral perfection, acting almost, so to speak, almost as a physical force, such that imperfection, especially moral imperfection, is destroyed in his presence, like a snowflake in the presence of a nuclear explosion. The holy and the profane cannot coexist. The holy and the unholy do not coexist. And it is the profane that's destroyed in the presence of holiness. Not the other way around. And in the Bible, people who find themselves in the presence of of God, they, they instinctively get this. They get it straight away. They realize that they need protection from God's holiness. And the perspective, uh, the experience of Isaiah is perhaps illustrative. Um, um, let's, let's hear Isaiah's personal testimony together. It's recorded in the sixth chapter of the book that bears his name. I'm going to read it, but if you'd like to find it in your pew Bible, it's on page 557. So if you'd like to, please uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, page 557, if you've got a pew Bible. Beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple, or temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim 
flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Well, on on that day, Isaiah's in the temple. He's serving the Lord. He's been consecrated. He's been set apart as a holy man. As far as bystanders would have been concerned, as far as his friends at the pub were concerned, this already was a holy man set apart for God's exclusive use, a righteous man. But then he, there he is in his workplace, and suddenly God turns up. And the experience of God's holiness is terrifying to him. It's terrifying because he instinctively knows that actually, not in that sense, no, in the real sense, he is not holy. He is, he is profane. He is a man of unclean lips who dwells amongst the people of unclean lips. And he knows instinctively in his gut that the holy and the profane cannot coexist and that the profane is destroyed in the presence of a holy God. He needs protection. That's what he needs. And protection is given to him. And he registers this, this protection that's given to him. He registers it. He understands immediately and instinctively that this is unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness. And the, ex- the experience of being given undeserved protection, which we'd call grace, his experience of grace, it changes his life like that, doesn't it? And what does he do? Well, what actually he does is he consecrates himself. The, the end result of his experience, his experience of holiness, the fear that that, that that manifests, the conviction of sin, the receiving of grace, it leads him to offer himself to God as God's messenger. And what he's done is he simply set, set himself apart for God's exclusive use. He's consecrated himself. He's set himself apart for God's exclusive use. Now he's, now he's holy, <laughs> again, in a different way. Well, Isaiah's experience is not uncommon. He is by no means the only person in the Bible who's experienced this. Um, and, and in fact, actually, all Christians, all, all Christians, um, however they may have come to faith in Jesus Christ, they have all had this experience in one form or another, spiritually speaking. It's, it's the experience of the holiness of God, perhaps in, in reading the Bible by yourself, or perhaps in corporate worship, or perhaps in a moment of, of personal crisis and, and reaching out to God. Th- these things bring understanding. Suddenly in the presence of God, suddenly in the presence of God, we truly know what it means to be sinful because here is holiness. Suddenly we know what grace is all about because suddenly we we just get it. Yes, now I understand. Although, in fact, from a legal human perspective, I've never done anything wrong. I've never, by God's grace, so much got us a speeding ticket. Yet, actually, now in the presence of God, I get it. I am profane. Jesus actually did need to die for me. I get that now, and I'm happy about it. And I receive it for what it is, undeserved, unmerited, unearned kindness from God. Thank you, Lord. Yes, I deserve to die. I'm a sinner. 
Now I get it in the presence of a holy God. And on that basis, suddenly with the Spirit working, on us, working in us in that way, suddenly instead of resenting God, we love God and we want to serve Him, our Savior. Well, that's a little bit, therefore, about God's holiness and how Isaiah experienced. So let's turn back to the passage we're looking at today, page 60, Isaiah, 16, Isaiah 19, beginning at the 16th verse. What did Moses write for us? Let's read. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Well, we know what God's intention is here, don't we? I mean, God is intending to frighten people. And is it working? Yes, it's working. They're very frightened. And that was God's intention. God has set out to scare people, and they're scared. But this is just a prelude. This is just the introductory suite, because actually, as frightening as this is, God hasn't arrived yet. The thunder, the lightning, the very thick cloud, the very loud trumpet blast, these things are awesome. And you may be unfamiliar with the technical use of the word awesome, because in our age, awesome has become a general purpose superlative meaning great. Like, how's your pizza? Oh, my pizza is awesome. But awe is that emotion we feel in the presence of something vastly more powerful than ourselves. And it is an utterly overwhelming, bowel-moving mixture of wonder, astonishment, and fear. If the pizza really was awesome, we'd run away from it terrified. God is awesome. He is revealing his majesty, that he is vastly more powerful than we can possibly imagine. Verse 17, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The the, the Lord, Supreme Commander Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, he descends to Mount Sinai. Now, in, in many ancient religions, hills and mountains were sacred because it was here people thought that the gods lived. But God does not live on Mount Sinai. He has condescended to be there. He has come down to visit us. God is revealing his transcendence that, as creator of the universe, he is most emphatically not a part of this universe. He is other. And the thick cloud and the smoke, they convey this. God is mystery. We, we, cannot, we are not capable of grasping him. We're not capable of comprehending him. Not at all. Not unless he reveals himself to us in ways that we can understand. And even then, with analogical revelation, we understand him truly, but still only in part. 
He's ultimately a mystery. Now, um, in the ancient Near East, people's understanding of the universe was that it was kind of like a vertically aligned column. We don't think of the universe that way anymore. We think of, of the earth as a round sphere which is spinning on its axis and it goes around the sun and so on and so forth. But in, in, in Moses' times, they, they thought about the universe as a vertically aligned column where it began with the roots of the mountains and the roots of the mountains held up the earth and above uh, the, 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 the earth was an expanse which separated water from water and in that expanse was sky. And so the roots of the mountains hold up the earth. Um, uh, So then by by, by shaking the mountains, what God is revealing in in essence to them is that actually he's he's bigger than the universe. They can see for themselves that God is bigger than the universe because he is shaking what they understand to be the foundations of the universe. In the presence of God, the foundations of the universe tremble. And the Lord descends in fire. And I think, I imagine, it's consistent through Scripture that the fire represents God's holiness. And it's a good picture of holiness because because fire, well, actually, it's beautiful. And, um, and, and, And we love it. And it's warm. And we're drawn to it. Um... Uh, you know, if you light a fire, people can't help but stare at it. Um, but if you get too close, it burns you. In fact, if you get really close, you'll perish. And so it is with the holiness of God. It's his beauty. But it's also dangerous. So he, the holiness is represented by fire. Verse 19, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And this is, a, um, this is a conversation that is to be a witness. It is to be witnessed by the entire nation. And we read last week in verse 9 that the purpose of this conversation is that it is an authenticating witness, an authenticating conversation. It attests to the fact that Moses really is God's true mediator with respect to this covenant. And so from on this, on this point, the whole nation is to know if, if Moses said, says God says, then he has. If Moses says it's true, then it is. This is the authenticating witness. God actually answers Moses. Verse 20, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. Well, well, actually, in this chapter, three times, three times um, we read um, about not touching the mountain. And in the Bible, three is the number of, of emphatic emphasis. When it's said three times, it doesn't need to be said anymore. It's emphasized as much as it can be emphasized. It is absolutely, therefore, it is absolutely essential that the people take God at his word about this. God's holiness 
will kill the people if they come into his presence without protection. The, the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Well, Moses and Aaron, they're allowed to come up, but the priests are not allowed to come up. And um, uh, if we're following the story, this might, this might sound a bit anachronistic because actually there are no priests at this point in the story that we know about. I mean, Aaron and his sons, they will be ordained as priests um, much later in Leviticus chapter 18. So who are these priests? Well, nobody knows exactly, but my take on it is that in one sense there are many priests present and that's because in recent weeks as we've traveled through Exodus we've heard about how Aaron and Moses and all the eldership of Israel they're all called to a priestly ministry as well as to a prophetic ministry a priestly ministry all these elders have in many and different ways are the task of representing people in the presence of God So I think that the Lord is perhaps referring to the elders of Israel when he mentions priests. So there we have it for today. There's there's the answer to every skeptic's question. Why doesn't God just show himself? Well, here he is doing precisely that. This is a theophany, which means an appearance of God. And there are vast numbers of theophanies in the Bible. Now, When we look at these theophanies, these appearances of God, we find that God can make an appearance in any way he chooses. And in fact, in the Bible, no two appearances or theophanies are exactly the same, and some of them are very different. But all theophanies are intended to teach us about God. As this one has today, God is revealing the glory of his majesty that he is awesome, that he is powerful, that he is transcendent, that he is the creator, that he is most importantly of all, that he is holy. All of these things communicate to us the alienness of God. He is other. He is not like us. He is potentially extremely dangerous. Israel needed to understand this. We need to understand this. All of the things we've learnt today from this passage, this is the right place to start. The right place to start is holy fear. But although it's the right place to start, it's actually not the right place to finish. And you might be a bit relieved to hear me say that. Because actually it's not where the Bible finishes. Because on that day, early in the history of God's people, on that day when God revealed himself in that way to the nation of Israel, he was by no means done revealing himself to his people. And as Scripture unfolds, we see him showing himself to his people in many and in various ways, many theophanies, but the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate appearance of who God is and what he's like, it comes through Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to see, that's basically, this is the best answer we can give as Christians. When somebody says to us, if God is real, why doesn't he show himself? The best answer we can give is, if you want to know, from a Christian perspective, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's the, that's the fullest representation. Jesus shows us God. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and majesty and the exact representation of his being. Jesus, Jesus the man, the creature, imminent, close by, touchable. Jesus the weakling, nailed naked to a cross. Jesus the friend of sinners who goes to parties, the physician who came to heal. Jesus, the man who is holy in every sense, God with us, holy, set apart, a man set apart for God's exclusive use, holy. Jesus, truly holy. The, the author of the book of Hebrews writing to Christians and teaching on the passage that we've just read, um, he wants his readers, because they're Christians, he wants his readers to understand that the covenant that we have with God is through Jesus. It's a better covenant than the one our ancestors in the faith had with God through Moses. And the point that he makes in that passage that um, Tim read to us, um, the point that he makes is a complex one. On on the one hand, we don't need to fear anymore. It's good news. Joy has replaced fear. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And his blood, it makes a better speech than the blood of Abel and the speech that it made. Because Abel actually was murdered by his brother Cain and Abel's blood in the ground, it did make a speech. It spoke eloquently to God and it cried out for justice. And God cursed Cain, who was driven from the land to become a restless wanderer. And at the time, Cain cried out and appealed to God, saying his punishment was too great for him to bear. Now, if that's the speech that the blood of Abel made and the Son of God comes to visit him, and we spill his blood, what kind of speech is that blood going to make against us? I mean, think about it for a moment. God sent his one and only Son to us, and we murdered him. What kind of, spe- what kind of condemnation, what kind of punishment is going to come upon humanity because of the speech of that blood? But in actual fact, it turns out that that speech, that message is a way better message because it's not, it's not a word of condemnation, it's a word of forgiveness. God is giving us sunscreen, protection. The, 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 blood, the blood of Christ turns out to be the thing we most desperately need that covers us in the presence of a holy God. That, that actually smooths out all blemishes um, uh, and, and takes away all defects. Um, uh, it, it, in, covered in the blood of Christ, it is God's protection for us. It covers all of our sins so that we are blameless, without sin, without blemish or accusation in the presence of a holy God. Not fried, not judged, not vaporized. So, so this, is, this is the author's point. We've come to a better place than Mount Sinai. We've come to a joyful assembly, a city of worshipping, praising, thanksgiving people. Not, not a mountain of darkness, fire, gloom, and storm. 
We've come to a place where joy replaces fear. But on the other hand, actually, one of the things he's trying to balance in this passage is joy does not replace fear. It's joy and fear. Because we have received something that cannot be shaken. Our universe, the kingdom of God, it can't be shaken. That's the true foundation of the universe. It's, it's not the center point of where the Big Bang happened, or it's not, it's not the, the roots of the mountains. They're vague and, 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 and vain thoughts. No, actually, the, the real universe is called the kingdom of God, and that's unshakable. Everything else can topple over, but the kingdom of God can't topple over. That's unshakable. And therefore, in response to being given this, let's, like Isaiah, offer our lives in worship and in thanksgiving, in reverence and in awe, in holy fear, because we know that our God is a consuming fire. So joy replaces fear. That's true. Joy is mingled with fear. Our joy of the Lord doesn't lead to complacency. It doesn't lead to arrogance. It doesn't lead to any sense of entitlement, but rather to worship and obedience, for our God is an awesome God. Let us, therefore, to borrow Paul's words, let us continue to follow Jesus. Let us continue to work out our salvation with joy, but also with trembling and fear. The Lord be with you.